0: Welcome to episode number two of the FPSA Food Safety Podcast Series. This series is focused on food safety and hygienic design in the food industry, sponsored by the Food Processing Suppliers Association. My name is Andy Drennan, and this is the second part of our conversation with guests John Butts and Joe Stout. Now let's join the conversation as they discuss hygienic design and sanitary principles. All right, very good. Now I'd like to change things up just a little bit. At our March meeting with the uh, Food Safety Network, we were discussing some. John, you were there. Uh, we were discussing about the different uh, regulatory agencies and how you know there was a need to uh, sort of clarify. You know, who are the federal and state agencies that people should know about? So. I just want to throw it out there.
1: Yeah, I I think the context of that, Andy, was we were talking about uh, young engineers entering uh, our business both uh, with our OEMs and, frankly, with with the processors. And in the food area, three primary regulatory agencies that uh, have skin in in our game, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is USDA regulates meat products— FDA regulates non-meat products and Department of Commerce uh, has the seafood HACCP, so it, it has uh, regulatory responsibility in the seafood area. And, and there's a lot of gray lines between what FDA versus what USDA regulates. And uh, sometimes you'll have facilities that have both USDA and FDA and et cetera, et cetera. So the regulatory situation... You know you go back years ago uh, we used to have send blueprints into Washington to have them approved for sanitary design or whatever we do have all the right materials but in, in all honesty the food processors have taken on that responsibility and uh, we we have a need for the regulatory process but we don't necessarily need their divine intervention if we're doing things right Mm -hmm. so again getting back to the food safety culture regulatory process really helps us but those companies that have advanced that that level of maturity has taken on that responsibility it's always better to do things right the first time Yeah. yeah joe do you have anything to add to that
2: yeah, so uh, just some general thoughts about, not so much about regulatory, but something that John touched on. I just want to build on, and that is how do we drive improvement in hygienic design in the industry? I've held what we call hygienic design summits. I started them for primarily for the produce industry in 2016, and I've held three or four of them. And a hygienic design summit is a meeting where you're we had 15 processors and 15 OEMs, uh, equipment and facility construction primarily, and we would do general introductions, be a one-day meeting or a day and a half in the, in the first one, and our purpose was, let's go ahead and get you guys talking. What are the issues with equipment? What do you have concerns about? And it was very interesting because I don't think a lot of the food safety people that were really passionate about hygienic design ever in the past had conversations with OEMs about that same issue. And so having dialogue and letting OEMs and processors talk about their specific issue is really powerful because they don't know. At the same time, sometimes food safety people are really passionate about food safety But then the OEMs would say, hey, I installed this. We did have one OEM stand up and said this. Hey, I installed a really nice piece of equipment in your facility, and I came back to service it in two years. You had drilled holes in the framework. You had not done the preventive maintenance, and we had, I think you had bad situations. So it's really a two-way street where OEMs and processors need to work together to improve hygienic design because they don't know what they don't know, either from the processor side or from the OEM side. So this whole process that I mentioned earlier about collaboration between follow the customer, satisfy the customer, is how do you get a coaching team that works from the processor's end in a group and also the OEM to drive improvement? And that does work because communication really helps and these the OEMs really want to work with processors and they want to satisfy their customers. We all want to satisfy our bosses, right? So how do you work together collaboratively without threats to drive improvement and build that culture of communication between OEMs and processors? And I think more so than regulatory oversight, more so than specifications or standards, I am tired of hearing everybody say we need a new standard. <laughs> we don't need a new standard. You need to talk. There's plenty of standards out there, pick one and use it, but you really need to have that discussion with your processor and you processor with your OEM because it'll make the world a difference. Sure. And um, we've sure. we've seen that over and over again.
1: Joe, that takes me to the point that uh when you mentioned standards uh for some reason, some people don't always understand. But back the back in the day when the equipment design task force from AMI was working, you came out with principles, yeah, and yeah. you you referenced some standards. But to me, that's been one of the greatest saviors that I've had in training food safety people and training maintenance people, plant management, executives, because this is a principle. It works. You live by this principle and uh, kind of explain a little how that the concept of principles came about and how it's endured time here.
2: Yeah. So a little bit on the principles of hygienic design. So um, we had a team of meatheads, right? (laughs) There was like a whole group of about 10 companies and had, volunteered representatives under the AMI banner. And the question was, since the USDA was moving away from their white book and their standards of Royal Oyster (laughs) stamping every print that was ever defined. I don't believe he ever physically looked at the equipment, he would just stamp it. So it was like a green light to go ahead. At any rate, we figured we had to do something different. So we assembled this team And there were some thoughts even at that team that we would develop a hygienic design standard. I said, no, we're not doing standards because that is a sinkhole and there's so many good standards out there. So let's go ahead and develop some principles that we can live by and that would be applicable to a meat slicer, to a conveyor, to an elevator, bucket elevator, to any piece of equipment that you would have in your plant. And it covered some of the things that John talked about, niche areas, sandwich points, um, you know, open threads, closed framework. We like open framework. So we covered all those general principles. And that really, I think, has made a difference in the industry. And then the other thing that we did uh, as a group was we, the OEMs, and John was part of that, and then ConAgra and all the other, Tyson and all the other big meat companies got together and said, here's what we want. We want the same piece of equipment for John, for me, for Sara Lee, for Conagra. And we want to work together. And we want you to follow the principles. And I think that finally worked through an evolving process as we would walk the floor at the AMI process show in Chicago. Wow, things were starting to happen. Yes. And they really did. It didn't make a difference. The other thing about the principles is with AMI's approval we've kind of taken them out to other areas in the industry. So there's 10 principles for the dairy industry. There's 10 principles for produce, 10 mm-hmm. principles for bakery, low-moisture mm-hmm. foods, which mm-hmm. was under uh, GMA at mm-hmm. the time that we did that. So they've really spread throughout the industry, and it's a much better learning experience and learning approach rather than a standard that would be – at Craft we used to have the uh, 107 standard – it might've been the one Oh five, but every piece of equipment had to be designed to that standard. And just to go through and develop a specification for any piece of equipment, you'd have to go through a booklet that big mm-hmm. on what the leg looks like, what this framework, what the junction looked like, the weld specifications. And, you know, even to put together a bid, it costs an arm and a leg. Sure. So we want companies to follow the principles and those principles are good. Even 20 years later, we developed those in like 2000, mm-hmm. I think it was about 2000. And, uh um, so it's almost they've almost survived twenty years so far, and I don't see them anybody backing off that's the greatest
1: toll gone. Well, well, they work they work they work, and you know if you want to have some fun, get a bunch of maintenance folks that's been working on overtime Saturdays and set them down to a book of standards and say, "Well, let's go over this piece of equipment, yeah now, you're going to keep them awake about five minutes at the most yeah. uh, but but if you give them principles, you know you can't drill into a hollow member. Of the structural component because this is what's going to happen and you you know uh, you relate to all those smelly things that you maybe have ran into before you know so it, it's so much easier to teach and it's so much easier for them to understand and guess what it gets down to why it explains mm-hmm. why standards don't explain why
0: so is that the main difference between standards and and principles.
2: Well, it's more than that. I think it's, it doesn't explain why. But the other thing is that it's a user-friendly document, and it's almost a training tool as you do a hygienic design review, where a standard is a book. If you look at the BISC standard for the bakery, baking industry, they talk about the casters. I think there's a whole page and a half on casters. So this is what a caster on a dotro needs to look like. And we wouldn't entertain that level of detail because people would fall asleep. You just don't get it. But what you would talk about in casters is hard to clean areas, sandwich joints, wear points, and that all becomes relevant. And if you train somebody on the principles and microbiologically cleanable, even for a caster, all of a sudden say, oh, I get it. It's all important. So I think it's a simpler, more effective way to communicate what we want in equipment. And it has seemed to work after, after twenty years. So I think
1: Joe and I's desire is all of the OEM folks who are on the CAD machines doing that drawing. That the holy grail of those principles, are every time they look up, they can see them. Sure, sure.
0: <laughs> now that makes sense. Are the principles focused strictly on equipment, or do they also apply to facilities?
1: Well, I'll take that. Uh, not only did we have an equipment design task force at AMI, we had a facility design task force. Really? And uh, that task force uh, came up with 11 principles, uh, many of which cross over into the the growth net situation, you know, microbiologically clean, dry floors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So not only do we have this for equipment, we have the same grouped set of principles and the checklist that goes along with that. So looking back in time, what AMI accomplished was – the equipment design principles, facility design principles, checklists that were really very detailed in how to evaluate and how to how to design, and then the workshop that uh, did the training, and uh, and likewise the support of the board of directors to make food safety non-competitive.
0: Okay, another. Um issue that was brought up in our food safety network was uh, that there are a lot of acronyms in the food safety world. FSMA, USDA, uh, for someone that has no experience like our young professionals, this can be confusing. What are some of the most important that, you know, if you're just coming into this industry, that you need to know about some of the acronyms?
1: I think they will certainly see them in the trade press and in various things. So I think the best thing they have is called Google. (laughs) these young kids know how to do that i mean you know gosh when's the last time you gave a millennial directions to go somewhere other than where you really wanted them to go that's true (laughs) that's true so
2: uh to make things simple um because we throw a couple of acronyms around and food safety modernization act that is what like a 700 page document john it's just it's massive but I think some key principles with the Food Safety Modernization Act translate into preventive controls. And just about everything in that document focused on prevention. Uh, John mentioned that earlier. It's like, how do we prevent cross-contamination that would allow the transfer of a pathogen from a raw area or a zone four into a zone three, into a zone two, and ultimately into a zone one? So everything that we do in a food plant if you want to do it right, preventive control under, call it FSMA, but GMPs, that's prevention of cross-contamination, use of tools. You want to make sure you don't use raw tools in a ready-to-eat area. When you clean the floor during sanitation, you want to make sure you don't aerosolize anything from the floor that goes onto a product contact surface. Uh, You want to make sure you don't have condensation coming down in the overheads. Everything that you can think of that would prevent cross-contamination is under FSMA somewhere in that document. And that also applies to allergen protein uh, residue of allergenic proteins that might be on a product contact surface for people that have allergies to peanuts or gluten or wheat or whatever. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that fit in there, but if you think more broadly, it's really about how do you prevent cross-contamination that would make food unsafe? It also could go to foreign material. Foreign material controls are gigantic today Mm -hmm. in USDA and FDA facilities. How do you prevent foreign material from getting in and then also have an additional control that would be a checkpoint, like a metal detector or x-ray, that could determine if there is some foreign material contamination in there? More and more we see um, recalls for foreign material, especially from USDA facilities, for a lot of different reasons. But really important. So that's another preventive control. So when you think of FSMA, it's like, how do we prevent cross-contamination?
1: Yeah, And, and to work on the foreign material issue, although not, wasn't really originally designed in this, uh, it's a huge situation we're faced with now. And what I have experienced in my client base, particularly the meat client base that I have, we have developed the ability to Eliminate and or control the microbiological risk that we're faced with. But the same principles that we're using to do microbiological process control can be applied to foreign material process control. We can't inspect quality and safety into a product. We have to prevent it. And I, I really commend the authors of FISMA. I think we know some of them personally. They did a wonderful job in the concept of preventive controls. HACCP has CCPs, which are critical control points which prevent problems. Well, regulatory HACCP forgot that there was a CCP, too, originally that was needed and required prevention or critical factors of control, but it didn't exert direct control. Microbiological contamination, foreign material contamination – have to have preventive practices applied to them because we're really not in the business of putting foreign material or bacteria into the food and then trying to inspect it out. So the preventive practice of hygienic design has to recognize what can come loose at the food contact level or above the food contact level, just the same as we have bacterial invasion at that level or above. So, you know, hygienic design really encompasses many aspects and not all of them are microbiological.
2: I want to build on that thought because the preventive control, prevention of foreign material contamination, one of the things that is linked directly to hygienic design is preventive maintenance. Preventive maintenance is typically done by the processor, but there are also are guidelines that a lot of OEM puts out, what you need to do to oil the machine, lubricate it, disassemble, maintain it. All these things need to be done because if you don't, you're going to end up with maybe a bearing going bad. You're going to end up with steel-on-steel abrasion, which causes fragments or parts of stainless or filings to go into the product or belting that wears because they don't have the guide set up properly and it's not aligned properly. So all these preventive maintenance things. I mean, in sanitation, we are very disciplined in most facilities about a master sanitation schedule. When do we have to clean it? What's the cleaning procedure? Track it. Did we do 100%? Did we do 80%? What did we miss? Likewise, from a preventive maintenance perspective, you really need to go in there and have a schedule for everything that needs to be done to maintain that piece of equipment in optimal shape. It's like getting your automobile inspected. You know, you have to check the brakes once in a while. In some states they have vehicle inspection, some they don't. You need to make sure your emissions are working. You need to make sure your windshield wiper blades are good. Same thing on a piece of processing equipment. Otherwise, you get things that fall apart or you get pieces that may not be operating correctly. So it's, to me, preventive maintenance, just like under FISMA, and they do reference it, preventive maintenance
1: is really important. Mm-hmm. I'll take that a level higher. Uh, the maturity model recognizes preventive, but we also have to recognize predictive. And once we really understand how things are working in that process and in that system, we can become predictive. Uh, my favorite story here is I was down in a large poultry processing plant in the, in, in the south, and I, I like to spend time in the maintenance shop. Okay, you just you just learn a lot there. So I, I saw hanging next to a uh, next to a toolbox a stethoscope, and that stethoscope had a long stainless steel rod attached to it. about three feet long. So I looked over to the old maintenance guys. Hey, well, guys doing playing doctor here as i picked up the stethoscope and no 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 you know we we take that out there and put the tip on a bearing and i listen to it and if it's making too much noise we're going to change it when we get a chance so <laughs> here is a simple simple i mean many of these things are so simple it's unbelievable sure. but you know by being able to predict when to do something is so much more economical. And so if I, preventive is typically based on time, preventive maintenance, preventive actions. If we can get to understand that process well enough to develop the measurement system that we can use to be predictive, then we can really fine-tune that process, remove a lot of variation, and just produce product.
0: I'm sure you both uh, are familiar with food safety and the uh, standards and principles that they're using in Europe. How is it any different over there than what we're doing here?
1: I look at the marketplace in Europe as being tremendously different. Europe has, in my area, for refrigerated products, products have a very, very short shelf life because the consumer goes to the store more frequently. They don't have the massive in-house storage mindset needs whatever that uh, that we do. It's we're talking different cultures here. Here in the United States, I have to ship product all over the country. In Europe, you don't necessarily see that breadth of distribution. Sure. You see more localized, you know, and and the trend that we're seeing here now is it's locally produced. Well, you know, I don't know what local is, but uh, so we've had to develop equipment that has the hygienic design to enable us to have that longer shelf life, whereas that's not necessarily been the situation in Europe. And I think we're seeing some of the things happening in Europe now that is bringing to question the prior practices of hygienic design. So I think we've seen a lot of great European standards, and, and there's some great things going on over there. But uh, Joe and I spent a lot of time over there uh, working with those engineers, even though we may not spoke the language, to help them understand. Uh, so, Joe, you, you're much more familiar with E-Hedge and those folks than I.
2: I mean, I think the E-Hedge standards and principles are terrific. They are definitive They are, I think, ahead of where we are. Mm -hmm. But I think to John's point, I'm not sure that they, and they're driven by the grocery supermarket chains there versus, and GFSI versus product quality. I don't want to say that product quality and safety, but to the point that John made, it's a different marketplace. I mean, in this country, because we've gotten really better at hygienic design and cleaning, especially in the meat world, you could have a shelf life on a sliced luncheon meat that would be 100 days. In Europe, typically, they slice meat to order. I don't even know if that, they have I guess they do have it in the retail level. But it is a different marketplace that doesn't have the same demands that we have. So we actually have to be better in some respects than they do. Uh, having said that, a lot of our equipment here in the States comes from Europe. And they design it to the standards that we need. And they are responsive, and some of the equipment's really good. Other differences, I mean, in the U.S., any milk that goes in to use to make cheese, with the exception of artisan cheese, needs to be pasteurized. In Europe, France, they don't want to mess with their cheeses. They use raw milk for cheese, and in the most part. And I like the cheese in Europe, but, <laughs> but it's, it's not made with, in most cases, with pasteurized milk. It's certainly not regulated that way. So there are some differences. But I mean, either way, we have challenges. They have food recalls not as often as we do. I think they're less microphobic, more chemical phobic. Mm -hmm. because they're really concerned about GMOs. And in this country, we're less concerned about that, more concerned about micro. And we have a zero tolerance level, which they do not have in most cases.
0: Both of you, I'm sure in your work life, you have probably seen, you've probably worked with a lot of companies that have set rules, but on-site the employees or the contractors don't follow or even skip reporting an issue to avoid problems. How would you deal with a situation like that? How have you dealt with situations like that?
1: Well, again, that's food safety culture. Yep. 101. I have a client that, and at my age, I, I, I feel some necessity to it that when I walk up or downstairs, I hold on to the handrail. I was in this client's plant, and an hourly worker was next to me, and I had my backpack and a cup of coffee, and I didn't have my hand on the handrail. And he told me to put my hand on the handrail. You know, I mean, can I carry your bag for you? I mean, the values that we have. And how we manage our good manufacturing practices have to be common to a facility, and we have to learn to live that. And so it's the organization's ability from the leadership team, the owner of the leadership team down, to share common values. And we have to create a situation through training and expectations to create that peer pressure that was exhibited by me not holding onto to that handrail. Uh, the owner of our company years ago, was he loved to tinker with machines. He was an engineer by trade. He was out in one of the plants. He got ready to fix one of our slicers. It wasn't working the way he wanted it to. The operator just simply pulled his hand away. This is my machine. You know, he was going to do something that uh, violated her hygienic uh, expectations and that. And she told the owner of the company, and I think she probably knew who he was. But that was respect there. That was understanding the requirements. And and it was her machine.
2: (laughs) I guess a couple things. One, being in sanitation for all these years, I really am sensitive to safety violations And that is one that I watch all the time. And if somebody goes up and down a stairway, they should hold on to the handrail. But the other thing that I'm conscious of is the handrail should be clean. Because if that is a regulation in a plant, you know what? People going up to work in a scale platform that is at the top of a stairway, if they hold the handrails going up, they're going to contaminate their hands. Preventive controls. Yeah really got to think about some of these things that cross-contamination, doing the right thing by safety could cause a spillover effect to cause cross-contamination of the product. So everything we think about in the food plant and hygienic design needs to be geared up to, you know, are we safe? Any change you make, we need to look at and say, okay, what is going to happen because of this and because of our actions as we look at this? So I think that that's really important. The other one that I just, you said people doing the wrong thing in a food plant. Some of that is hygienic design related. And I think of one of my pet peeves is to see people when they're cleaning during sanitation, get up and get inside or inside a platform or inside a, or on a conveyor or a cleaning or a washing station. That is a zone one surface. And I have seen people walk on that surface, Mm -hmm. walk on those surfaces, because that's the only way they can get them clean. So that comes back to hygienic design. Those people that do that, they don't want to do it, but there's no other way to get the work done. So in part of the hygienic design reviews, it's accessibility for cleaning is what we talk about in the principles. And if you have a platform that is sandwiched in, and not spatially friendly, and that's in the facility design principles, how's the person going to do it otherwise? Sure. You have to have a platform around that piece of equipment to make it easy for him or her to do the right thing. And that goes back to hygienic design and preventive controls and thinking through the implications of anything we send into a food plant. And that's where the processors and OEMs need to work together on any new design, new piece of equipment, How are we going to clean it? Can we access it? What are the risks? What about that person when they walk up the stairs? Are they going to cross-contaminate because they touch the rails with their hands? Is that a painted rail or is that stainless steel? Is it cleanable? And it may seem like a a silly thing, but silly things matter when it comes to food safety because we don't want to cross-contaminate product that's going to make somebody sick. I have a daughter who is a celiac patient, and she is my oldest daughter, and she is fastidious about observing every practice that people follow on the kitchen table. And if you happen to double dip and you get a slice of butter off, a stick of butter on the table, and you put it on a piece of bread, don't you dare <laughs> try to use that knife again on the butter, because that's going to cross-contaminate sure. the butter that she's got to use on her gluten-free bread. Right. So it's those simple things, that same type of thinking. I've learned so much to see just her observations about cross-contamination. It's really fascinating when you critically think about stuff that can happen when you do other stuff. It's like stuff makes stuff happen that might not be good. And that's the way we need to think about hygienic design, about sanitation, about FSMA, preventive controls. What can go wrong here, and what do we have to do to minimize the risk so we don't make somebody sick? Joe, does training
0: and food safety culture do they go hand in hand?
2: I that's they should. A great question. Should. Well, you know, I don't know. So some companies, when we go in and do assessments, um, you know, they say, "Well, make sure people are alert. And ask people if they know about food safety, and if ask them if they're empowered to shut down the line for food safety." Okay, I'll do that. So I go and um "What do you know about food safety?" and if you saw something that was a problem on a line, would you have the, do you feel empowered to shut down the line?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you did it? No, I was going to (laughs) say,
2: what would cause, what is a food safety issue? What is a food safety issue? And sometimes they don't know. So I think training and culture is so important because unless we give people enough information to know what the issue is and walking up and even the thought about holding your hand on the handrail. Sorry, I keep bringing this up, John. <laughs> holding your <laughs> hand, handrail and causing cross-contamination, that's an issue. Right. So they need to realize that because a lot of times when people are busy doing their daily jobs, they do things that if they thought about, they wouldn't do. So it's great to get the culture, but along with that culture, you need to say, okay, if you have a culture of food safety, what does that mean when you're out on the floor? And it's preventive controls, preventive controls, and preventive controls. So that's what, and I love the food safety culture idea, but it's got to be translated into something that people understand sure. that are out on the floor, and that culture is
1: thinking about things you do that can cause cross-contamination. Mm-hmm. And there's um, one of my pet peeves is uh, I'm, I'm visiting a plant, and as I'm going through, I'm led by the top quality or food safety person and uh, we see a gmp violation and they immediately go over there and correct that person i am now in a state of the gmp police (laughs) and these people do training once a year we're going to train gmp's once a year because that's what our requirements are Uh, we're going to not do any of your projects for the month before we have an audit because we gotta get everything ready for that audit. This mindset is poisonous in our system. The expectation, and I would love our OEMs to participate in this. When we have huddles, the cadence is food safety and people safety, that's the first thing you talk about. And then we go into the other aspects of the business. Consumer complaints, you know, mm-hmm. quality, you know, uh, not all food safety issues are quality issues, not all quality issues are food safety issues. Then we talk the numbers. And, and I think our, our OEMs need to recognize many of these opportunities. So when they come in to sell, what are they selling? Very good.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Join us again for Episode 3 coming soon.